You are listening to the First Baptist Jinx podcast. To learn more about FBC Jinx, including our gathering times, visit us online at fbcjinx.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Cody Brumley. Hey, well, good morning, church family. It is great to be with you. Uh, It's good to be in the house of the Lord. We're in Ephesians 1. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23 is where we're going to be. If you are a guest with us, we're really glad that you're here. We want to get to know you. Make sure to fill out that Connect card, and you can drop it off in one of these kiosks back here. Or those double doors will be open after service, and I would love to meet you. give you a little gift from our church, get to know you some more. Uh, If you're not part of a group, by the way, that little card is like the only way we know you're connecting. So like, fill that out, even if you've been here a lot, but you haven't quite connected yet, just just let us know you're, you're leaning in. Uh, if you're joining us online, we're really glad you're here. Hope you take a next step to connect as well. And those over in Overflow, uh, thank you uh, for being here and joining us, joining us that way. As you turn to Ephesians 1, I want to just uh, give you three words to think about. They are the words, I got you. I got you. And I don't mean like when someone plays a joke and then says, I got you. Like, that's not cool. Don't do that. I mean when someone is encouraging you, like you're facing a challenge, like, I got you. Like if you've ever ordered food to realize you don't have your wallet, And then someone says, hey, I got you, which is great if they have enough money to cover you. It's bad if they're like, we're going to run real fast. You're like, no, that's not good. Or like if like the hood on a car perhaps is open and there's like smoke billowing out like and I'm looking in it and somebody walks up and says, hey, I got you. Like I'm immediately relieved because if I walk up to you in that situation and I say, I got you, this should mean nothing. Uh, There should be no comfort, no encouragement unless I'm on the phone with someone who can have us because ultimately in that situation, uh, I don't have what you need for the challenge you're facing. That's the only way that those words bring comfort is when you're facing a challenge and somebody says, hey, I've got you, and you know they're good for the challenge that you're facing. And that is what's happening in this text. Paul has written to the Ephesians. We're going to pick up right where we left off. And he just said, hey, God's got you. That's what the whole first section is about. Three times it says, to the praise of his great glory. So Paul's just worshiping God and saying, hey, he's got you. You are blessed with all spiritual blessings. You are redeemed. You are predestined. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You're a possession of Christ and a possession of God as his inheritance. And you have an eternal inheritance in God, sealed by the Holy Spirit. God's got you. And it's like the Ephesians hear this and go, okay, that's great. And I believe that spiritually, eternally, he's got me. Does he have what I need for what I'm facing today? And that's the next question, and that's what Paul answers for this church without a question, yes. So let's look at the text, Ephesians 1, 15. It says, for this reason, so those words point back to what we just said, everything that led up to this, because God's got you, because he has saved you to the praise of his great glory, and because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... So Paul goes, because you are saved and there's proof of it, because your reputation is your faith in Jesus and your love for the church. By the way, if you're wondering the the essentials of a believer, it's that. If you're wondering the essentials of a church, it is that. Faith in Jesus, love for the saints. Paul says there's proof that you've been saved. So what does he do because of that? Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. We're going to study this text all the way through to know what this meant for the church at Ephesus and then consider why it's still meaningful for us today. And Paul's response to knowing that they are saved, that they have faith in Jesus and love for the saints is two things. He says, I'm thankful and I'm prayerful. By the way, that models for us an appropriate response to hearing about other believers and other churches. 
When you drive by a church, you should go, man, I'm thankful that God is working, God is moving, God is saving people, and I'm prayerful because that church is in the same battle that we are in. And that's how we go to battle for each other is through prayer. That's what Paul's going to tell them in Ephesians 6, so he models it in Ephesians 1. He says, hey, there's a spiritual battle. It's raging, and you fight it in prayer, so I'm praying for you. Paul says, church at Ephesus, I'm in Rome in prisons, but I'm battling for you. I'm calling on this God on your behalf. That should be so encouraging to their faith. So what is it that Paul's praying? Verse 17, he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. That's a summary of his prayer. That God would give them the spirit of knowledge and revelation in him. So he's praying that they would know God. That's essentially what the goal He's praying that they would know God in a way that's only accomplished by the Spirit. It's a Spirit-created knowing of God. That's what he wants for them. Obviously, this is a great Trinitarian verse. You have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit, you have the Father, all three of those making up God uniquely. Now, you might read that and think, okay, why do they need the Spirit? I was here last week. I listened to Drew. Go back to verse 13. It says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, that is Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So they've already got the Holy Spirit. Why is Paul praying that they get the Spirit? And Drew explained this really well last week. It's kind of like when you purchase a house. Like we just moved to the Jinx area, coming back from Little Rock, so we buy a house. The house is now ours, but it's also in the process of becoming ours. And in that same way, it's like whenever you are saved, the Holy Spirit has you. You belong to God completely but you're also in the process of giving yourself to God entirely. And that's what's happening. Christ has moved into your life. The Holy Spirit has moved into them. But now the Holy Spirit's in the process of revealing to them everything that's true about God. And that's what he wants them to have, is to know God. So then he restates this in verse 18 and following. So this is, uh, it's a parallelism. So he says, essentially, that I'm praying that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, In 17, then verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So the eyes of your heart's being enlightened. Well, that's revelation. So he parallels those two that you may know, right? What are we revealed to know? Verse 17, revelation and the knowledge of him. 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's revelation that you may know that's in the knowing. But this time, instead of saying of him, we have listed three things that God accomplishes for us. And this is where Paul models for us what's always been true of God. Our knowing of God comes from knowing what God has done on our behalf. So when we open our eyes to understand and look at the history of how God has worked, we know the character of God better by seeing the work of God clearly. And that's what Paul wants them to do. And there's three things he wants them to see. He wants them to see hope, he wants them to see riches, and he wants them to see power. This is called a nerd alert. This is called a a tricolon. So it's a literary device where the author would list three things and each one gets more words to describe it than the last one. So he's building up. There's a sentence about hope, a little bit longer sentence about the riches, and then the longest sentence about the power. So that was Paul's focus. It's going to be our focus today. He knows what they need is to know God. And to know God, they know, verse 18, that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the first thing, the hope to which he's called you. Paul's writing them and going, listen, it changes uncertain times when you are confident in your certain future. If there's anything that you all need to know, Church of Ephesus, it's that your future is secure. I want you to know the hope that you've been called to. 
As Honer says, this isn't the world's hope of wishful thinking that you're powerless to attain. This is Christian hope where you walk into a certain future because God makes good on his word. These are very different things. This is not, I wish this will happen. This is, I'm certain of the future that God has set aside for me. And think of how that would change things. I always think back to Brian and I spending a summer in Vermont as a couple of missionaries helping a church plant. And in our downtime, we watched this TV show called 24. Does anybody remember 24? Okay, uh, uh, for you young kids, we watched it on a thing called DVD. They're these shiny discs that we slide into this thing and would play. Uh, and so we're in like season one, but there's like six seasons or something like that. And so we're like, it's all intense. And then you would remember, hey, there's six seasons. This guy's not going down today because he's going to be there later. There's a certain appearance later, which means today he's going to be fine. That is living in the hope you're called to. Uncertain times but with a certain future, it changes everything. And that's exactly what he said you're called to. And note, Christian, it says we are called to hope. We should be hopeful people. Of all the things people can know, it we should be hope-filled people because our future is certain. But not only does the church of Ephesus have a certain future, they also have riches. Look at what it says next, continuing in verse 18, also to know what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance? This sentence is broke down this way. So looking back at the original Greek translation, if you're newer to the Bible, uh, Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And so we have some translation issues sometimes. This is one of those that it helps to know. So the sentence is that you may know the riches of glory, of the inheritance, of him in the saints. Four prepositions to follow. So you can almost read it this way, that he's praying that they would know the riches of the glory in the saints. The riches of the glory, that is the God's manifest presence glory that is in the people of God. If only they would understand the greatest glory they could ever have or be a part of exists in the body of believers. And then he says the riches of the inheritance in the saints. Drew mentioned last week, this is, has a dual meaning. Since both are true, we'll celebrate both. First, that God is our inheritance. He has stored up a promised inheritance for us for eternity to come. And so there's not an inheritance I really need to chase today since today lasts this long in the line of eternity. I rest in the fact that my inheritance lies with the Lord. But also, we are God's inheritance. He wants them to understand the riches of being an inheritance to God. God has chosen his people that he saved, that includes us, as like an eternal trophy to display. That he would rescue us to heaven, that we exist in eternity with him, as we all tell stories for throughout eternity, continuing to unpack the great goodness of God. And God says, see those people? That's my inheritance. That is my love and my justice and my power and my goodness on display for eternity. No questions asked. That is my character and it's in them. We are an inheritance of God. What that means, by the way, is that you are valuable. So if you weren't sure if you were valuable, God values you. You are his inheritance. He's chosen you to be that. And then he says, the riches in, of him in the saints. This is his presence. You have the attention of God because you are valuable to God. He goes, church of Ephesus, if you only could know the hope, the certain future you have, if you could only know the riches, the abundance, the gloriousness of God's glory and the inheritance you have and his presence as a gathered people, if you could only wrap your mind around that. Because if they could, 
They wouldn't seek value in glory from man because they've already got all the glory they need in heaven. They wouldn't seek value in a glorious inheritance here because an inheritance here goes away. An eternal inheritance lasts forever. They wouldn't seek value from the attention of other people because they have the attention of God's presence. Instead of being a value seeker with all of their energy, they become value givers because they found all their value in Christ. It would change everything if they could really understand the riches that they have in eternity through Jesus. But the main focus is on the next sentence. You have a secure and certain future. There's a hope. You have this riches in God's glory, in his inheritance, in his presence. But then, verse 19, that you would know the last what. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to his power, I'm sorry, according to the working of his great might. Now that verse 19, there's actually four synonyms for the word power. That we find there in the original Greek. So it is the word power. What is the measurable working of his greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working that is effectual power? So it's an active power of his great might. It stacks the last two. That is four uses. Nowhere else in scripture do we see three, let alone four synonyms for this word in one sentence. Again, this is a literary element that Paul's using to draw sobriety and seriousness to what he's saying. What do you think he wants them to know about? Not a trick question. Anybody? Starts with P, ends in hour. Oh, I see it. Power. Nailed it. He wants them to get it. He's going, listen, power, 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 power. Of all the things I want you to get, I want God to open your eyes through his spirit so you see the power that lies there. And he doesn't only use those four synonyms, he also uses two cultural words. If you look back at the text, it says immeasurable greatness of his power. Immeasurable greatness. These are two Greek words that are find in, found in ancient uh, Ephesus papyra. So that's the cultural writings in Greek way before this time regarding the magic of the day. So we talked about the culture. This is a very superstitious, supernatural um, sorcerers and that kind of culture. So they believed deeply in the unseen. But this church is saying we're following God under the threat of all of this dark, evil Power, immeasurable greatness carried by these other people that threaten us. And Paul drops it in here using their secular language to say, hey, you've heard of the immeasurable greatness. How about an immeasurable greatness that is matched by the power, 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 power of God? He is securing them as they look at a culture and feel threatened by the authorities and the power and the things of that moment. And he says, they stand nowhere in comparison to God. And then he proves it. He proves it because he says, this is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. So the proof of God's power is not your experience or my experience. It's not what's written or somebody talks about. It is what happened in Jesus. That's the proof of God's power. So we have to look back and say, all right, well, what, was the, what did he work in Christ? Two things. When he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This is how he proved his power. Don't skip over the first one. I know a lot of you are churched. I know you're like Jesus raised from the dead. Check. This is the early church. <laughs> All these other powers are threatening things. And Paul reminds them, yes, but the power that is for you for all who believe, that is the power that went into a locked and sealed tomb by Roman guards and found a mangled, murdered Jewish man whose heart had been stabbed and 
put it back together and cause it to pump blood again. That closed open veins that unfilled the blood from his lungs and filled him back up with air that opened his eyes and raised his mangled body into a glorious strong body to walk out. Nobody's doing that. No other power, no other threat has conquered death. Just God. And in case you didn't know, most of our life, like it or not, revolves around prolonging, putting off, or avoiding death. Moms know this, okay? Right? Moms fall around kids. They're like, don't do that, right? Like, most of our life is about that because we know the finality of it. We know that it's unavoidable in our physical nature. And then as Christians, Paul writes to them and goes, hey, guess what? This thing that everyone else can threaten you with isn't even a threat to God. So he raises Jesus from the dead. That's the resurrection that you are promised as a believer. And he, then what does he do? He seats him at the right hand. That's really important in the text that it says seated. Seated is a position of royalty and it's a position of victory. Right? A king who's still at war, isn't seated on his throne. He's leading armies. Where do we find Jesus? The work's done. He's completed the work. Your sin and my sin, the power, the presence, and the penalty of sin has been completely demolished by the power of Jesus and what he did on the cross. The work is complete. He reigns as an authority. That's his position in heaven. And then there's two places we see. Where is he seated? In the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. By the way, take note there. Four lists of hostile powers. Look back at that verse. He's far above rule, authority, power, and dominion. So any type of authority or power or threat you can imagine to your life, Jesus is above it with his power that he's working of his great might, match for match. So he's above that, which is a statement of space, and it says that he's also above every name. That is named not only in this age, but in the age to come. The use of the word age is a time statement. So here, Paul's made a statement about time and space, and that Jesus exists in power outside of both of those. Now let that sink in for a minute. Jesus Christ, the ultimate power raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, exist outside of space, meaning that there is no natural or supernatural or spiritual uh, presence to which he is not an authority over and outside of time. It's the age and the age to come, which means he has limitless time to spend with you, to meet with you, to walk with you, to draw you to him. Every power and threat that we that gives us anxiety, that gives us worry, that we feel pressured on our life, they are restricted to a chronology and a geographic time frame, time and space. Jesus alone exists outside of that. That's power. All things, verse 22, are under his feet, and he has given his head over all things. Of all the things that Paul wanted this church to get, I mean, you've got a certain future and you have these riches that are waiting for you and you have this Jesus who is the unquestioned power. Nothing happens outside of his direction and dominion. He is the total authority. Now, we could see all that and be like, that's fantastic. That's a very powerful God. And this is where we're like, good. Um, the beauty is actually in the next word. He gave him his all things who did he give him to at the end of verse 22? To the church. Now, 
whenever I read this the first time, the first several times, I was thinking, great, he's head of the church, he's head of the church, he's head of the church, we know that. The text says he's head over all things and was given to the church. This is actually marriage language. A father who gives his son to be head over the body, which is a, a bridal language. This is a union of marriage. Think, now think through that lens for a moment. A groom who has absolute power for all eternity. A groom who has limitless resources, glory, inheritance, presence. A groom who's unthreatened and uncontended. All things fall under his feet. Joins himself to a bride. How do you think he will use his power and his resources and his position on behalf of his beloved? You marry into that? It's a good gig, right? Jesus, who goes, hey, you're my bride. I protect you. I love you. I lavish good things on you. I'm, I'm the power over all things, but you are my bride. You get to experience these things in a way no one else does. I've got you. If you didn't know, you were loved. Jesus, it sounds really simple, Jesus loves you. And not a dead Jesus in a tomb, a risen victorious king, total power and authority, Jesus loves you. Let that sink in, because when our heart understands that, it changes things. And that's what Paul wanted, wanted him to know. So, he's given his head to the body, which verse 23 says is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Fills all in all is poetic language there, but the picture of the fullness of the body and filling all in all is Old Testament language because throughout all human history, God has ruled everything, but he's uniquely placed his glory and filled his glory with certain spaces. So he ruled all things, but his glory filled the tabernacle. He ruled all things. His glory filled the temple. He ruled all things, but his glory filled Jesus. He was Jesus tabernacling with us the, the, the expressed glory of God in man, and then Jesus ascends, and now what does his glory feel? The church. We are the fullness of God's glory. God's glory is his promise, his presence, and his power on display. That's God's glory, and it happens here. Because there is no concept where you're like, okay, this is great, the power of God. Like, I've got the power, right? Like, I'm connected to you. I've got the power, right? Like, that's what you, yes, okay. Uh, yeah. It's kind of true, because you do, but, but we've, we've got the power. Because there was no concept in the early church of a Christian separated from the church. To come to Jesus was to come to the family of believers, to unite to a new family, a new nation, a new kingdom, a new church. And that is where this says the promise and presence and power of God is on display in his church. So that is us, but that's also uniquely us in a gathered way that the glory of God fills us now. That is the greatest privilege of being a Christian. Our greatest privilege is that we get together in a way that the, the promises and the power and the presence of God is displayed. We are the manifest house of the glory of God for the world. If we understood this, it changes things. And that's what Paul's getting at. That's what it meant for them in the threatening world they lived in. He wanted them to know everything that belonged to them in Christ. 
And that's what this means for us today. First of all, we look and say, well, what happens after faith and love? After I have faith in Jesus and then I love his church, what's next? Do I just like keep believing in Jesus and just keep showing up to church? No. When you were there, that's the foundation. You can't go without that. But when you have faith in Jesus and you, and you love other believers, from there you have the rest of your life and the rest of eternity for the Spirit to reveal all that is ours in God. The character of God waits to be discovered by you through the Spirit. That's, what, that's what's waiting for us. And so that's what Paul tells them. Hey, that's what's next. And this knowing of God comes before doing for God. Church history, we've got that backwards sometimes. We're like, hey, have faith in Jesus. Hey, you need to show up to church. This is your new family. Now it's time to start doing stuff. So you gotta keep showing up. You need to give. You need to go on a mission trip. Uh, we're gonna make you work with kids at some point. I don't even know if you like kids. We're gonna put you in there. You're gonna teach something. Here's all these things you gotta do to somehow like be on God's good side. And that's just ridiculous. That's not scripture. Scripture says, have faith in Jesus, love the saints, and then know God. There's plenty of doing we're going to get to in the book of Ephesians, but before that, it's about what we know. And this knowing, based on the language, is not explained knowing, it's experienced knowing. If you're taking notes, it's worth writing down because you need to remember that. It's experienced knowing. The gospel was not meant to just be explained from a person, from me or Drew or Rick or Nate or from your small group leader or from your mom or dad or grandpa to people. No, 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 that, that's not the goal is explain knowledge. It's experience knowledge. Paul wanted them to experience the hope that is in God, the hope of living in uncertain times with a certain future. He wanted them to experience the riches of God's glory and God's inheritance and God's presence in the gathered body. He wanted them to know what that feels like because it changes everything. He wanted them to to know and experience, not just hear about the power of God explained, experience the power of God. That's what he wanted for them. It's why he said, have the eyes of their heart enlightened. Poetic language, right? Obviously, he's not talking like a physical blood pumping device with eyeballs. That's a terrifying image. It's not helpful. So he's clearly talking about the seat of their emotions being enlightened. This is a connection between understanding and feeling. The knowledge that we need, that changes everything, is an emotionally tied knowing of God. As we know God, we know his hope, and we experience the riches in him and the power of him, it should move us. Emotions means to move. We should be moved. That's what Paul wanted for. There's plenty of things we know that have no business moving us, right? I was an example yesterday, right? I knew the score of a football game. It moved me. No, there's lots of things we hear or learn and it moves our emotions. When was the last time you were moved? That the things of God moved you? You just sat in the presence of God and you prayed, you, you read. And your heart was just stirred. That you were like, God, I'm facing so much. There's so much going on. There's so many things that fight us. I just don't know if I'm capable. And you look at God's power and you go, but I've been moved by your power. I've been moved by your goodness. And you stand up and you walk different because of who he is. Listen, if the things of God haven't moved you, maybe he's not your God. You have to consider that. And if that's the case, don't worry. 
you get to start the same place. There's three moves to make. We've got three moves for everyone to make. And the first one is for, is for that. If you I mean, the spiritual things, they've never moved me. They're not tied to anything, which means there's really no knowing of God because if you knew God, you'd move towards God. So the first move is this, have faith in Jesus. He says, I've heard of your faith in Jesus. It starts there. Today, recognize if you do not know the outcome of your soul for eternity, solve it today. We're gonna stand up in a minute. You walk forward, you say, I'm choosing to follow Jesus. I'm in. I heard that he's got me, and now I believe he's actually got what I need to face, what I need to face. I wanna follow that Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. He rose again. He's the authority. And whenever I die here, my spirit's gonna stand before God, and I'm gonna point to Jesus and go, him. All of my hope is in him. That's it, what he did on the cross, not a prayer that you prayed, not joining a church, not behavior. You're gonna point to Jesus and say, that man, he died on the cross, he rose again. He is the reason that I belong. Make that decision. Come forward and say, I give my life to Jesus. Move number two. If you've done that, you belong to Jesus, love his church. Love the saints. Commit to the church body. That's why we have baptism. It's a way of saying, I no longer belong to myself. I belong to this family. So come forward and say, I want to be baptized, be a part of this church. I want people to know where I belong. If you've been baptized in church before, we're going to high five you, celebrate that, and say, welcome to the family. But you need to like, commit to the church. And if you've committed to Jesus and you've committed to his church, you are in a place that you can spend the rest of your life discovering who God is in a way that it moves you day after day after day to face uncertain times with your certain future, to experience the riches of his glory and inheritance and presence, and to know experientially the power of God poured out for you. I'm gonna invite you to stand while we pray and then invite you to make your move. Would you stand? God, we pray right now as a church family that you would move us. Lord, if there are people in this room today, Lord, I pray for the ones that are here that they don't know their future. They do not have a certain future. They are unsure about the condition of their heart and who really their God is. Would you draw them today to say, I'm following Jesus. God, would today be their day of salvation? For those that are on the outskirts that have not just locked into a church home, I pray today would be the day that they commit that they say, I'm in for loving the saints. This is my family. Lord, for those that have taken those steps, would you draw them to you to say, there's more of me to know. And would you let them experience the power and the hope and the riches that lie in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.